Chapter 7, Part 1 of the English Language by Logan Pearsall Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Language and History, the Dark and the Middle Ages. We have in the previous chapter traced the evidence embedded in the English language of the culture of our ancestors and their progress in civilization up to the time when they left the continent to settle in their English homes. From the Roman civilization of Britain, which they destroyed, and from its Celtic inhabitants, whom they massacred or enslaved, they received, if we are to believe what language tells us, practically nothing. The Latin word castra, which survives in the name of Chester, and the ending of many other names, such as Doncaster, Winchester, etc., is almost the only word they can be proved to have taken from the Romanized Britons, while from the Celtic speech, as we have already seen, their borrowings were equally scanty. The next great stratum in our language, the next great deposit of civilization, is that left by the conversion of the Angles and Saxons to Christianity in the 6th and 7th centuries. By their conversion they were transformed into members of the community of Europe. And at this point, the two streams of Teutonic race and classical civilization at last met and mingled. In the 6th century, however, Europe was plunged in the night of the Dark Ages. It was not the culture of Athens and free Rome, the literature and philosophic thought of the great classical tradition that the Christian missionaries brought to England, but the rites and the doctrines of the Church, as they were preached and understood in the obscure period of the late Roman Empire. The effect on English life and thought was nevertheless immense, and we must test it not only by the foreign words that were brought by Christianity into our language, but also by the change of meaning in our native words due to Christian influence. The early missionaries, in order to make their simpler and more fundamental doctrines clear to the understandings of their hearers, chose native words nearest the meanings they wished to express. And thus much of our religious vocabulary is formed out of old words filled with new significance. Words such as God, heaven, hell, love and sin. The Anglo-Saxons, indeed, like the modern Germans, preferred to translate rather than to borrow foreign terms. And some Christian words were rendered by native equivalents which have since become obsolete as R-O-acute-E, or rood, R-O-O-D-E, the native word for the Latin cross. Many Christian words were, nevertheless, borrowed from Greek and Latin and still remain in the language as witnesses of that great transformation. Among them may be mentioned altar, olb, candle, cowl, creed, disciple, font, nun, Mass, Shrine and Temple from Latin, Acolyte, Archbishop, Anthem, Apostle, Canon, Clerk, C-L-E-R-K, Deacon, Epistle, Hymn, Martyr, Pentecost, Pope, Psalm, Psalter and Stole are words borrowed at the same time, 
which were of Greek origin, but which were adopted in Latin and came from Latin into English. If we examine the vocabulary of continental Christianity, so large a part of which has been imported at various times into English, we shall see that most of the terms belong to the classical languages of Greece and Rome, but that they have been curiously transformed and have acquired new and strange significations by being made the medium of Christian thought and feeling. The Greek language did not possess terms to describe the deeper experiences of religious life. Still less were such words to be found in the speech of the practical and warlike Romans. The task, therefore, set before the early Christians was to forge from these materials a new language, capable of expressing a whole new world of thought, the beautiful or dark conceptions of oriental mysticism and introspection, the dizzy heights of oriental poetry, and the joys and terrors of the soul. This task they accomplished with amazing success, partly by changing the meaning of old words, partly by the formation of new derivatives, partly by violent translations of Hebrew idioms, and to a certain extent by borrowing Hebrew words, they found means to express such conceptions as charity, salvation, purgatory, sacrament and miracle and many others. Sabbath was borrowed from the Hebrew, abbot from the Syriac. The Greek word for overseer, episkopos, became our bishop. The daimon, the god or divine power of the Greeks, was changed into the medieval demon. Idolon, a word for image or phantom, became our idol. And the angelos or messenger, the diabolos or slanderer, were transformed into the great figures of angel and devil. There remain two other Christian words which deserve more than a passing mention. One of these is Easter, in which is preserved the name of a pagan goddess of the dawn or spring, and of a pagan spring festival, which Christianity adopted to its purposes. The other word is cross, which embodies in its form an important aspect of English history. The word crooks, C-R-U-X, which denoted an instrument of execution in classical Latin and which was given by Christianity so tender and miraculous a meaning, was translated into Anglo-Saxon, as we've said, by the native word rod. Cross is a form borrowed by the Irish from the Latin crux and spread by them in their great missionary efforts among the Danish populations whom they converted in the north of England it appears, first of all, in northern place names like Crosby, Crosthwaite, etc., and finally makes its way from the northern dialects into literary English. The word cross, therefore, which we employ in so many and often such trivial uses, is a memorial for us of the golden age of Irish civilization, when Ireland was the great seminary of Europe, whence missionaries travelled to convert and civilise not only the pagan north of England, but a large part of the continent as well. 
The conversion of England meant, however, not only the introduction of a new religion. The flood of Christianity flowed from sources deep in the past of Greece and Asia and brought with it much of the secular thought and knowledge which it had gathered on its way. And the union of England, moreover, to the universal church opened for our ancestors the door into the common civilization of Europe. Of the effect of these influences on Anglo-Saxon culture, the growth of literature and learning before the conquest, it is hardly within our province to speak. The Anglo-Saxon language, with its multitude of terms formed from native elements, was partially destroyed, as we have seen, at the Norman conquest, and almost all its learned words perished. We are only concerned with the deposit left in our living English speech by this first great flood of European culture. With the Bible came words redolent of the East, like camel, lion, palm, cedar, and terms of drugs and spices like cassia and hyssop and myrrh, which is one of the offerings of the Magi to the infant Christ. Gem, too, is a Bible word, and crystal, which our ancestors used not only for the mineral but for ice as well, as they believed rock crystal to be a form of petrified ice. The more secular part of the early deposit of borrowed words from other sources resolves itself very largely, like the earlier continental borrowings, into the names of useful instruments, animals, plants and products. Cup, kiln, mortar, mat, post, pitch, fan for winnowing, plaster in its medical use are among the early English borrowings, and with them the names of Capon, lobster, trout, mussel, and turtle for turtle dove, and of useful plants like coal, C-O-L-E, cabbage, parsley, peas, asparagus, beet, fennel, radish, with trees like pine and box. The lily and the rose are also Anglo-Saxon borrowings, but seem to have been used first in literary allusions. The names India and Saracen reached England before the Norman conquest, and there are two far-wandered words, like the earlier pepper and the later orange, which travelled to Anglo-Saxon England from remote sources in the east. One of them, our familiar word ginger, is derived from the Sanskrit, and believed to belong ultimately to one of the non-Aryan languages of India. Ginger was imported into Greece and Italy from India by way of the Red Sea. Ancient merchants brought its name with them, hence it came to us through Greek and Latin. Silk is believed to have come all the way from China, and to have reached us from Greece and Rome through some Slavonic language, and by means of early traders in the Baltic provinces. Phoenix, the name of an imaginary bird, and adamant, used in literature to describe a half-fabulous rock or crystal, combining the qualities of the diamond and the lodestone, were, with the earlier drake, the first of the names of the legendary animals and jewels to reach us from the east. 
Purple, being the name of the royal cloth worn by kings, was, like the earlier Caesar, a reminiscence of the Roman Empire. School, scholar, verse, philosoph, P-H-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-E, her faint gleams penetrating in the dark ages of this remote island from the light of Athenian civilization. The words circle and horoscope borrowed late in the old English period are traces of the interest which the Anglo-Saxons took in mathematics and astrology. But among the words of learned borrowing that seem to have survived the Norman conquest, not a few were really forgotten with their companions and were adopted again from the French. Thus the antique and noble word philosopher, which King Alfred had taken from the Latin in the form of philosoph, P-H-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-E, appeared again in the 14th century in the French form of F-I-L-O-S-O-F-E. Circle and horoscope also perished and were re-borrowed in the same century, and our word scholar probably comes to us not from early English, but from the later French. While the terms, therefore, for the common and unchanging experience of life, for the most vivid of human conceptions, sun and summer, moon, stars and night, heat and cold, sea and land, hand and heart, and for the commonest human ties and strongest human feelings, remain in English substantially unchanged from the terms of the Angles and Saxons inherited from a prehistoric past, practically all our terms of learning and higher civilization have been borrowed from the continent, and especially from France. The conquered island of England was for centuries a pale moon, illuminated by the sun of French civilization, and it must now be our task to trace the penetration of that light into the English language and the common consciousness of the English people. For the influence of France before the conquest, language gives little evidence. We find two or three French names for drugs or herbs in learned works, and at the time the ginger was borrowed from the Latin, Gallingale came through France after an even longer journey, having travelled through Arabia and Persia all the way it is believed from China, where it was in its original form Koliang Kiang, mild ginger from Ko, a place in the province of Canton. Two other French words borrowed before the conquest are of considerable interest. These are pride, which appears about AD 1000, and proud, which came in about 50 years later. They are both derived from the French prud, P-R-U-D, preux, P-R-E-U-X in modern French, which descends from the first element of the Latin verb prodesse, P-R-O-D-E-W-S-E, to be of value. These words, which in French had the meaning of valiant, brave, gallant, soon acquired in English the sense of arrogant, haughty, overweening, this change of meaning was due perhaps to the bearing of the proud Normans who came over to England before the conquest in the train of Edward the Confessor, and the aspect in which these haughty nobles and ecclesiastics presented themselves to the Englishmen they scorned. 
Another word introduced at this time, and no doubt by Edward the Confessor, is Chancellor, a word full of old history, which for all its present dignity is derived ultimately from canker, the Latin word for crab. How the Cancellarius, a petty officer of the Eastern Empire, stationed at the bars or crab-like lattices, cancelli of the law courts, rose from an usher to be notary or secretary, and came to be invested with judicial functions and to play a more and more important part in the Western Empire, belongs, however, to European and not to English history. But the word is of interest to us as being one of the three or four French terms that found their way into English and Anglo-Saxon times. Before we dismiss the subject of Anglo-Saxon borrowings, there are a few words of Danish derivation that should be mentioned. The greater part of the Scandinavian words in English have not much historical significance, save in so far as they are a record of the Danish invasions and the large Danish element in the English population. The great word law, L-A-W, however, and such terms as moot, hustings, and the names for the divisions of counties, wappen, take, and riding, all of which appear in English in the late Anglo-Saxon period, are memorials of the fact that England was once partly settled and ruled by Danes. End of section 11